So he starts, he's on the walkie telling the operator, keep pulling, keep pulling, asking him how much weight he has, trying to separate these two pieces. And he's telling him, no, it's going to be 30,000 pounds, 20,000 pounds. Whatever. So he's got, I think the operator said he has like 25,000 pounds on it. And um, he's lifting, 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 lifting. And all of a sudden, I mean, the, the, the top section only weighed like 8,000 pounds. And once that mastic let go, it shot up in the air like a yo-yo. And just, wow. it just took off. And we're it, the crane was bouncing off its outriggers, um, you know, from side to side. They, it, was, it was a disaster. At Cool Air Products, we developed AC Smart Seal Quick Shot with professionals in mind. It's the only product on the market that's three-in-one with sealant, lubricant, and UV dye all in a single application. It's non-toxic, non-flammable, 100% safe to the touch, eco-friendly, and compatible with all refrigerants. It's a safe solution option, backed by years of R&D, Intertech tested, and has sealed millions of leaks. AC Smart Seal, the professional's choice. So as I've been talking about the Master Group and very generous of them to be sponsoring the podcast here, what I want to do is put together an interview with a couple of counter people that work for them because I think it's really important to get that side of the story. I mean, we've all talked to techs. We know the daily struggles of of techs within our companies and techs we talk to online. But do we know the daily struggles of a counter person? I mean, yeah, sometimes we make mistakes giving them wrong information. Sometimes they make mistakes giving us wrong parts. And, and I think having a conversation with them, we'll get, we'll get to know them a little bit better and help the communication between them. Because I've talked before, it's, it's very, very important to have a, a good rapport with a counter person or the counter people that you deal with on a daily basis. It's very good to have a rapport with them. Because one day you're going to need a favor and one day they can provide that favor if you have that rapport. So we're going to get a podcast with a couple people somewhere down the line just to talk about their daily struggles. So this Armstrong tip I have for you today basically revolves around plate heat exchangers, plated heat exchangers. Now I put this post out on on social media and, and whatnot. Now their tip is when you pipe these things in is to make sure that they have counter flow. Just like a, a coaxial condenser coil, like a water-cooled coaxial condenser coil. The refrigerant flows in one way, and the water flows in the other way, and they counter each other. They don't flow with each other, because if they flow with each other, there's not maximum amount of heat exchange. I wanted to compare it to that, just so you guys get an understanding. So, a plate heat exchanger, it could be used on a chiller system, it can be used on a boiler system. You want to pipe it so... Whatever the medium is you're exchanging heat with, with the other medium, right? Because maybe you want to exchange heat with, with a boiler for some reason and, and, and preheat some water or some, something along those lines. There can be all kinds of applications. Make sure it's piped in counter flow. Not going in the same direction with each other, but countering each other going in the opposite direction of each other because that will give you the maximum heat exchange. So I will leave, there's, there's a link that I dropped with that post as well on social media. So I'll, I'll leave that link in the podcast notes so you can just go check out sort of what I'm talking about. Okay. Anyway, let's get to the podcast. Hey, what's up guys? Welcome back. Listen, I'm just taking a break in a vacant space. It is eerily quiet. This is like a a building uh, and a bank that occupies about seven floors of the building. 
and this place is usually a zoo and there's barely any people in here. It's, it's super quiet. You could drop a pin. Um, so very strange times to say the least. Anyway, let's get to this. So about a month ago, we talked to Joshua Reese on the podcast about some ammonia and some ammonia service and some oil loss things. And, and that word I, I really couldn't get out of my mouth, like, like most times on the podcast, that coalescing filter that we talked about. Anyway, since then, Shane O'Connor reached out to me and we're going to have another discussion based on ammonia. Now, Shane and along with his partner started a compliance company based around ammonia. So we're going to talk about that and then we're going to get into some stories. Um, can't remember three or four stories max on, on some safety issues around ammonia that Shane was personally involved in. So these stories are very, very, uh, I would say that they, they hit home. They're, they're very realistic and things that can actually happen on a job in any, basically any part of the trade, but this is his part of the trade and he's telling these stories. So ammonia is one of those things where it's sort of like a niche driven industry, um, industrial refrigeration, but there's more people doing it than, than what I first imagined. So we're going to have this discussion with Shane and it's, it's a really good one. Shane's a great guy. He's got a lot of knowledge of, of this industry. So let's get to it guys. This is the HVAC know it all podcast. I'm your host, Gary McCready. Welcome to the HVAC Know-It-All Podcast, recorded from a basement somewhere in Toronto, Canada. Your host and HVAC tech, Gary McCready, will take you on a deep dive into the industry discussing all things HVAC, from storytelling to technical discussion. Enjoy the show. All right, Shane, it's just you and I for the evening. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, Gary. So... I want to thank you for offering your services tonight because we're going to talk about something that I don't get, ever get to work on. And we've only talked about really, I think like once, uh, potentially on the podcast. And that was like maybe about a month ago with, with Josh. And, um, he was talking about some of the things he did in service with ammonia and, and just some of the applications. And we talked about, um, oil loss and stuff like that. So I think we're going to have a bit of a different conversation, you and I, but it's, it's going to pertain to ammonia and, and a lot of ammonia safety and stuff like that. So I'm going to let you sort of tell your story up until this point, um, just how you got into the trade and where you started and, and sort of how you, um, escalated through, through the ranks to where you're at now. All right. Well, it's pretty, I mean, it's not that big of an exciting story. I, um, you know, I graduated high school. Make it, make it exciting. (laughs) I'll try to make it exciting. Um, well, you know, I graduated high school and like everyone else my age, I'm, you know, I'm 37 years old. And at that time it was like, really didn't like go to college. So I went to college, not really wanting to. And after about a year and a half, two years, I said, I've had about enough of college and, um, I wanted to like go make money and learn and I just happened to fall into ammonia refrigeration. My, uh, my uncle owned a company and I was telling, he was asking me what was happening with, with me and school and work. And he said, why don't you try come fitting pipe? And I said, uh, I said, sure. And, um, the rest is history. That was in 2003. And, um, since then, I mean, now I'm, 
partnered up with a former client of mine and we started our own business. Um, but in between there, there was quite a bit that happened. I, um, I got my journeyman license after being in the field about six years. Um, and then I got my welding certifications, my 6G welding certs. Um, I'm in school right now to meet my requirements for uh, getting my master's license, which is like a refrigeration contractor's license that you have to have in my state to perform any type of refrigeration work legally. Um, so what, what state are you in? I'm in Massachusetts. Okay. So the master's license is just if you're the company owner or do you just need somebody within the company to have it? Is like, how does it work? Yeah. You just, so it's kind of a, it's a weird area. You need someone, someone on your board or inside the company has to have this master's license for you to, the way that the state described it to me was, um, you to perform any refrigeration work. So as far as what I'm doing right now, currently, uh, with compliance and safety dealing with ammonia, I technically don't need it cause I'm not doing service work or any type of installation. Um, but or like, you know, modifications to refrigeration systems. If I was going to start doing it, when I start doing that, I'm definitely going to need it. Um, but yeah, it doesn't have to be a, an owner technically. Okay. And what exactly does this master's license, uh, like how do we go about getting it? Is it like you're, you said you're, you're doing a, a course is like a, <clears throat> how, like, is it a long course and then like a test is it hard yeah. is it easy like well how does well, it how does it go i think it's pretty similar um down here to what you guys deal with with getting a journeyman's or a technician's license whatever you want to call it whatever title you want to put on it we have to go through an through an apprenticeship um a four-year apprenticeship and then pass a written exam to get your journeyman's license um, after that journeyman's license is obtained, you have to be in the field working for a minimum of one year under a master's license, plus an additional hundred hours of refrigeration theory. They don't really specify what they want you to study, but you need a certificate saying that you have a hundred hours of accredited classroom time, and then you can take another written exam. Um, excuse me, sorry, which gets you your master's license if you pass that. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So you're in the middle of, of doing this right now. Yeah, I'm just wrapping up my my classes now so that I can apply. Then you have to apply. So then I apply to take my test and they grant me a date and I go and take my test. So then I will have, you know, pretty much, I don't think there's anything higher than that in my state at least that I can obtain as far as licensure for refrigeration. Mm -hmm. So what, um, before we get into sort of, uh, the, the company that you guys have, have began and what it is and, and, and what it does, what sort of made you get into the ammonia side of things? Was it just something that you, fell into by accident or did you specifically target that industry and go after it? Well, yeah, initially it was by accident. I was just offered a job when I really wasn't doing anything else. I wasn't sure what direction my future was going to take me. Um, and I was offered a job to work in refrigeration. And, uh, I mean, before that it really hadn't interested me. 
the refrigeration or HVAC industry. Um, I was 19 years old and offered a job. I was told I could travel the country. So I took them up on it and uh, the rest is history. I mean, once I got into it, I realized like I went to school for uh, marine engineering and mechanical engineering. And I realized like a lot of this stuff really fell in line with what I was interested in regardless. Mm-hmm. And I saw that the guys that I was working with that had been in the, been in the field for a long time, made a great living and enjoyed themselves. So I just kind of stuck with it. I said, Hey, I can make pretty good money here. There's a lot to learn. And, We'll see where it goes. And um, yeah, it just, uh, I instantly just kind of fell, I fell in love with it. It was just a sense of pride of working with, you know, this huge machinery, um, going into places that I wouldn't even have known had existed until I actually stepped foot in them. Um, so it was just, you know, really caught my attention and kept me, kept me involved and kept me, um, just kept me going. And I just, I really loved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like a lot of people, they enter the trade and they see all the, the different the different equipment they get to work on, the opportunities and different places every day, new challenge every day. Yeah. And and that's what I think, and, and some of the freedoms that come along with that. And I think that's what keeps a lot of the 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 kids that, that sign up for this trade. I think that's what keeps them around is, is they see all these different avenues they can go down. And something that stood out in your notes that you sent me today was in 2009, you began running small jobs and then 2010 you're running multi-million dollar jobs. So I kind of just want to gauge what the difference between a multi-million dollar job is and a small job. Like what, what is the difference so, there I mean, as, other far than, as, as far as like the, the, the project? Right. So other than, you know, um, price, Obviously, there's a big difference there. Like a small job would just be the scope of work, whether I'm doing some upgrades to a system, taking out old evaporators, putting in new ones, taking out old compressors, putting in new ones. You know, they're, maybe they're the refrigeration systems. I mean, I, I know you base yourself on the HVAC aspect of the industry and refrigeration is so much different. Like we have these huge vessels for storage, you know, accumulators. I know, you know, all the terminology and you've probably talked about some of it or maybe even seen some of it, but we have these huge vessels, like the high, the high pressure receivers and intercoolers and accumulators and recirculating packages, surge drums. Uh, so a smaller job would have been like just replacing a piece of equipment or replacing some piping or, you know, uh, a facility is adding on some more cooler space or some more freezer space. So we need to run pipe from the engine room or off of a header branch over, put a valve station in, hang an evaporator, pipe it up, test it, run it. And a larger scale job, like building entire facilities or, um, you know, adding a huge piece of machinery like an IQF tunnel or a spiral tunnel for blast freezing, stuff like that. And it's just the scope of work becomes so much greater between controls and the size of the pipe that you're running and the, the distance of the pipe and how much the equipment costs, you know, an IQF tunnel might cost, you know, might cost a couple hundred thousand dollars. And that's just the freezing piece of equipment. Hmm. So what sort of stress is on a person when they're running a multi-million dollar job? Is there 
is there an extreme amount of stress on on you when you're running these jobs or do you feel sort of relaxed and just kind of take your time not take your time like just lackadaisical but just kind of take your time with each process to make sure or method to make sure it's done right like i think as far as the stress level what what do you how, how do you feel about that uh the stress level now uh if you know this past what this past year i worked about nine months in northern maine up by the canadian border uh building a, a potato plant and um that job i think was like six million and it was it was me and one other person that were managing the project and that one the stress compared to on that job compared to me at 24 years old trying to run a one million dollar job with some guys the stress level isn't like a comparable thing mm-hmm. i um i didn't know if i could do it you know i've kind of thrown into these situations um wasn't sure if i could do it at a young age and then mm-hmm. as you get your feet under you and your experience and you've been in situations before that you know how to respond and how to react and how to deal with you know all the people you have on the jobs between your guys welders other subcontractors um coordination stuff like that once once you get your feet under you and the experience you start to have a little more confidence in yourself and um you know knowing that you can you can do it you know what what questions to ask you know what what motivates certain people so that that can that can all help in your in your project and trying to complete it that's really important i'm like what you said there what motivates other people now there's there's uh people in all aspects of life educators uh managers uh owners bosses whatever that are just one way like they're just it's this way this is how we do it but then there's people and i'm glad you said that that see the potential in other people and know how to get the most um out of them by treating them differently not i'm not saying treating them giving them favoritism but using different methods to motivate them and and i think that's kind of what you meant right yeah absolutely like uh some people are just motivated by money you know, some people want to work a thousand hours and get paid the highest amount of dollar per hour that they can. And other people are motivated by opportunity, by trying to learn something. You give someone an opportunity to show that they understand something, that they want to put their ideas down on paper into real life. Uh, that can motivate someone just as much as money can. 100% it can. Yeah. And especially if they know that there's something at the end of the tunnel they're working towards. And that's kind of a sort of a segue into my next question to you from, from the notes you sent is that you felt at one point you wanted to have more responsibility and you wanted to implement ideas and what, what happened there? So you wanted to obviously make some sort of transition at that point. So like, how did you go about deciding that and and what, what caused you to make that, that step? Um, so I work for, it's a family owned company that, uh, that I worked for. I worked for them for 18 years and, um, there's no succession plan. It's a small, it was a smaller company, like 10 to 20 people at any given time or year during any job, you know, and don't give it, it's a small company considering the amount of work that, that we were doing, you know, we we're doing up to like $10 million worth of work a year for 10 to 20 people. That's pretty substantial. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but there was no six, six, succession plan there. Um, like who was going to take over? Like I was in a foreman position, uh, lead refrigeration tech, or refrigeration lead. I mean, there's so many different titles out there. Um, but I'd never, like, I had never been officially given a title. Um, there was no, there's no like follow up on promises or conversations that were being had of like moving me up to the next position. Um, I had mentioned to them that there was some courses that I wanted to take. I had asked them if, you know, if they wanted to cover the uh, tuition costs for them just so, cause it benefited us both. And, um, and they had no, no interest in that, which I was fine with. I said, okay, you know, given, giving you guys the opportunity, I want to educate myself. It'll help us both. Um, I'll pay for it myself, um, which I did. And then it's, you know, after so much time of being told one thing, being led down a road and just um, it always being like a dead end. You know, I just always, I always found myself in the, in the, in the same position. And uh, I, I'd expressed to them, I'd expressed to them several times about, you know, what my ambitions were, where I wanted to end up, what I wanted to do in my career, like how I wanted to define myself. And it wasn't as, I didn't want to be a great foreman or a great project manager or a really good tech. Like I wanted to, I wanted to, I wanted to do it all from day one to completion. I wanted to, I wanted my hands in on everything. And, um, you know, we just had different ideas. We had, we had yeah. different plans. So I told, you know, I told them and I signed up for my courses and I started, um, I started looking for other opportunities just so that I was happier for myself, you know, just at home, um, tired of bringing my frustrations home to my family. My family was tired of it. Um, tired of being away from home. I was traveling so much. And, um, so I started looking for opportunities and that's how I ended up where I'm at now with my partner. Um, he was a former customer of mine and someone, He's a, he's a professional engineer, one of the smartest guys I've ever known. He, he worked in nuclear for like 15 years and, um, same thing with him. He got sick of traveling. So he took a job as a facilities engineer at a facility that I took care of. And, um, he never worked with ammonia, never worked in, re in refrigeration. And, uh, so he started his own company after that. He was there for a couple of years and him and I kept in touch. Um, we'd bounce things off of each other once in a while. And then, uh, you know, we'd ask how the family was doing. And I had told him about where I was at and what direction I was heading. And um, eventually when he realized how serious I was, he offered me a position as, uh, as a partner with him in the, in the compliance company that he had started. Okay. So this is the, um, New England ammonia safety. Is that the company? Yeah. Yeah. That's, okay. that's us. Okay. So what, what exactly do you, what is the scope of your work in this company as, as a compliance company? Do you guys go out and, and look at jobs and make sure people are staying safe? Like, like how does this work? Yeah. So that's, that's, that's originally what he started out as. There's a, there's a real like gap. There's a window that, um, is an injustice for our customers. Like we have, you have the contractor who puts the facility together, builds the, builds the plant, um, you know, tries to follow all the codes, gives the customer everything they're supposed to have. 
And then there's the facility owner and they just accept it. They say, okay, you know, they don't, it's not their fault. They're really good at something, just not at what we do. So I, you can't expect someone to know all the details and all the ins and outs of like what, what they need to be compliant and safe and legal when there's so much of it. Um, when dealing with ammonia, as opposed to like an HFC or some other type of refrigerant, um, there's a lot of legality and compliance that comes along with it because of the nature of, of the, of the hazardous, of the hazardous part of it. It's a hazardous mm -hmm. material that, you know, there's serious potential for, um, for public health and safety for, you know, immediate danger to life and health. And these people need to, we found a spot, he had found a spot to fill that, that gap and make sure and help these people with peeing IDs, um, um, your block flow diagrams, your electrical status, your charge calculations, um, relief piping, ventilation cal calculations. And there's just, there's so much that goes into it. All your documentation, all of your, all of your, um, your in, in inspections and there's different levels, you know, there's different tiers on how much refrigerant you have within your facility. You know, if you have, if you're over 10,000 pounds, it makes you a PSM plant, which is process safety management. And that you have a whole another set of rules that you have, that you have to follow. So that's what he got into. And by bringing me on, um, you know, I have so much experience in the field. Uh, haven't been in the field for almost 20 years that I can walk into a plant. He doesn't, he doesn't have to teach someone, you know, like about the refrigeration cycle. He doesn't have to teach someone what's safe, how to write a standard operating procedure, how to do all this stuff. Like I can, I can see all those things just walking into a facility. Um, and then by me getting my master's license, it opens up another window for us where we can go in, do a mechanical in, in integrity audit say your deficiencies are x y and z if you would like we can also fix these for you we can fix your deficiencies for you because we're licensed to do both um so that's really the goal that we're working towards now along with um we just started making custom custom kin kin uh, trolls for entire system automation so that's another exciting thing that's happening with, with what, what did you what did you call those custom uh, what sorry the just a custom kin kin trolls panel for automation for the ah, okay system. gotcha i see so i mean as far as the compliance side of things is like is there any governing body that is overseeing this and 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 telling like these plants, yeah, you guys need to be compliant and reach out to you guys to make sure you are. Like, how, how does all that work? All right, guys, February 1st, 2021. And if you're listening to this later on, you already know this because you keep up with the times. Testo has launched their new digital tools. Now, in my possession, I have the 557S kit, which has a couple of 115i temp clamps. Those are smart probes and 1552i smart probe, which is a vacuum gauge. Now, it also comes in a 550, 
all right and you can get it with the wired temp clamps or the wireless and the prices change depending on which kit you get it's very cool because the display of the 557 and the 550 is bigger it's got gauge faces on it there's a new app that's used with them and your old uh, smart probes you can use this app as well it's called the testo smart app not the smart probes app the testo smart app so you can download that now if you have the smart probes and download it going forward if if you get get out and get these these new tools the other thing that's super cool is the 550i now what that is is a manifold with no display you have to look at it through the app the reason being the re the design for this is because Testo was noticing techs were taking their analog manifold, taking the analog gauges off and screwing on their smart probes. Sorry for my notification. Screwing on their smart probes onto their analog manifold because they couldn't go into a cooler or a freezer without having the smart probe being affected by the temperature. So they were screwing it on their manifold and shoving their hoses in into like a display case to check it or set it up. So Testo caught on to this. They're like, hmm. If they're going to go out and do that, let's design one where they don't need to do that. And it's accessible through the Tesla Smart app. So that is the 550i. So check all this stuff out. True Tech Tools has it all available. I heard somebody got an email at 3 in the morning saying it was all in stock. And the 8% discount code also applies to this stuff. So the other week, last week actually, it was minus 12C in the morning when I got out of my truck. I was doing some leak checking. My big blue was frozen solid, which is normal because it's like water-based. But my big blue sub-zero was still liquid and it was still usable. So if you work in cold climates or freezers, big blue sub-zero is a formula you might want to check out to give yourself some of that um, convenience and your, your soap not freezing. Subco has a really cool product called the Shaft Blaster. Now, Melissa over at Subco, when she sent it to me to check out, she's like, you're going to get killed on that name. <laughs> there was comments, Shaft Blaster, I mean, come on. It's open for, for comments. Now, what it is, it's, it's actually way more compact than I thought. You attach it to your shaft of a condenser fan motor, blower motor, whatever, that's too long, that won't fit after you change it or before you change it, it's too long. And basically you take your impact gun, there's a little grinding wheel on it and it cuts the shaft off in like seconds. It's a pretty cool tool that part of the Trade Fox lineup actually. It's, it's, a, it's a technician invented tool. Technician saw a problem in the field, designed a tool to fix it. Now Supco helps distribute that tool. So check it out, it's called the Shaft Blaster. Very compact, it would put fit in my bag with um, my puller and my lubricant, my sand cloth and all that that I use when I go change motors. The other thing is I didn't realize how much I used a refrigerant um, PT chart until I started using the, the Danfoss refrigerant slider app. I'm on there all the time checking temps, pressures of, of the different refrigerants I work on as I'm doing sort of planning in my head for jobs and, and troubleshooting in my head. Um, before a job or something like that, I grab I grab my phone, I go to the RevTools refrigerant slider app and I check out pressures, temperatures. And it's got the added information of like global warming potential, um, like the the critical the critical point of the refrigerant where anything above or even to that, it um, it doesn't liquefy anymore. So 
check that out guys that's the dan foss refrigerant slider up but let's get back to the podcast and shane and some ammonia talk yeah so the governing body for i think for all refrigeration is the epa and then also ammonia refrigeration is governed all the standards and bulletins are set forth by the iiar which is the international institute of ammonia refrigeration so they, it's like, a, if you've ever worked within like a process hazard management or any type of process hazard um, or process safety, it's like a living, breathing thing. So it's continually being updated, continually becoming better, be- continually becoming more efficient, more descriptive. Um, so that's kind of what IAAR does with the ammonia systems. They... Um, they just keep they keep updating, and the EPA uh, has come out, and ASHRAE has come out. I don't know. Does Canada have to follow ASHRAE, or is that just America? Is that well? I'm ASH like an ASHRAE designation of, of a refrigerant, for instance. We use that same ASHRAE designation okay. here. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. So at that at ASHRAE building codes, and so ASHRAE 34's um, safety that they tell you that you have to you have to follow the IAR also when it comes to ammonia. If you go through ASHRAE, if you thumb through that, I know it's a pretty exciting read. If you, if you flip through that a little bit, um, you don't see much ammonia mentioned. They often reference IAR too for all the, for all the safety standards. Mm-hmm. So what but, I'm having, what I'm, what I'm trying to grasp is I'm just having a hard time understanding how you get clients. Do you, do you go out and, and seek your clients or do they, seek you like how, how does that work oh well, yeah i mean everyone has has uh some people are salesmen and some people aren't i'm not one of those great like cold call people yeah um so really we kind of hope that the epa well the epa sends sends letters it's part of the, the clean air act um you have to be compliant within especially for the smaller plants that are less than ten thousand pounds uh, you have to be compliant within general general duty clause, which basically just says um, all your pipes are labeled. You have uh, valve tags on all your valves. You have emergency response plans. You have, um, you've done a PHA, process hazard analysis. Um, You're aware of what your hazards are. You have plans to remedy them should any scenario come about. Um, You have P&IDs. You have maintenance history logs, stuff like that. Um, and that's unless you're paying someone a full-time position to keep track of all this stuff, it's really not possible. So, I mean, it's really, we just try to market, put our name out there, let people know. Um, I have, you know, quite a few contacts from being in the industry for so long. So I just kind of reach out and let people know like, Hey, if any of your customers need assistance, or if you need help, um, you know, getting the, getting all the, all the details banged out, just give us a call. So that's kind of how it's happened for us. And hopefully we just we, we keep growing. We have uh, probably have about a dozen customers now and we haven't really had to travel outside of the New England area of the United States. So um, we're, we're hoping that things can get a lot bigger, especially with, um, you know, being able to offer the custom kin, kin trolls for people's plants now too. I'm actually just, um, I just went on the EPA website regarding clean air and there's some uh, interesting paragraph. 
mm. on uh, on ammonia. It says deficient chemical accident prevention practices at some refrigeration facilities have resulted in releases of an anhydrous is that how you say that word and anhydrous ammonia into surrounding communities recently chemical releases stemming from caa 112 uh parentheses are violations at nine different refrigeration facilities have resulted in property damage numerous injuries and hospitalizations and several deaths since 2012 the epa has responded to these incidents with enforcement actions imposing over 8.4 million in civil penalties. In mm-hmm. addition, companies will spend approximately 10 million on supplemental environmental projects. Um, blah 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 blah. But it looks like, yeah, it looks like things are, are taken very seriously when it, when yeah, it comes to are, ammonia. Things are taken very seriously when it comes to ammonia. Like like I said, people's people's health. And it's not so much. It's not so much like people that are knowingly putting themselves into the situation by working with it. Um, it's, you know, it's the general public. If you live, say you live near a skating rink, if you live near like a private school with a skating rink or, or a public rink in your town, um, you know, chances are it's an ammonia refrigeration system to make that sheet of ice. If that, if that releases if you lose your charge of ammonia and it releases into the atmosphere and given the conditions of whatever the the um, temperature or the humidity or the wind is for that day you don't know where that ammonia cloud is going to end up and once you're i mean you can look up some videos on youtube of ammonia releases and people walking into clouds and not making it out of them not knowing what it is once you're engulfed in ammonia um, it's pretty difficult to get out, especially if you're not expecting it or you have no experience with it. So you're saying that if, if I'm across the street from an ice rink and there's a, a, a big leak in a system, so that, that ammonia is not just going like straight up into the air. It's actually staying sort of, um, lower in the atmosphere and and people can actually walk through these clouds if it's like across the street or something like that right so most most freons are lighter than air so they 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 rise um ammonia is uh they they um ammonia is heavy is heavier than air and it will sink it will fall down to the bottom and some well as as an aerosol as like a cloud so if you have heavy humidity in the air that day, it'll keep the ammonia cloud down down low. And sorry, I said ammonia is heavier. Ammonia is lighter than air, um, so it will go up. But as an aerosol or cloud or liquid, it will stay down low, and it's visible. And uh, yeah, it's it's engulfing. Hmm. So yeah, that when I said when I said up, I don't mean like straight up right away. I just meant like dissipate out, like. It, it like if it went outside um it wouldn't dissipate enough in the air and, and dilute itself you could actually still still walk through a cloud of ammonia like across the street from an ice rink that's that's crazy yeah yeah that's nuts so i mean that that is really a, a good sort of um runway in into some of these these stories that you've sort of written out for me that you've been involved in, we should probably talk about a couple of them because uh, just telling the stories might help somebody else 
to be a little bit safe, even if it's not with ammonia, even if it's with a different refrigerant, because I mean, let's face it, everybody out there, not everybody, but there's a lot of people out there that work on big systems that are not ammonia based. Um, I know that one of my friends, he's in supermarket refrigeration and he was in a machine room and there was, I think a relief valve or something blue. And he was in the machine room and he was trying to cap the leak. And instead of just getting out, he was trying to cap the leak and he almost passed out, barely made it out. And I might've told the story on the podcast before, but he barely made it out of the room. They had to call the ambulance and all that. And I don't know what refrigerant it was. It wasn't ammonia, but I mean, the fact that we have to be safe with all refrigerants, I think is sort of the, the, uh, the, the, um, the motto here. So the first one you sort of wrote down was in Boston and a relief valve letting go. Tell, tell us about that one. Yeah. So I was working at, uh, it's a smaller dairy. Um, it was a, they, they make milk cream and ice cream. Uh, we were adding, we we're adding a horizontal silo like a, like a holding silo with a dimple sheet to cools, whatever product they put in there uh, until it gets, you know, whatever it was like a, an ingredient storage container. Um, I, it wasn't a big job. I was, I pumped out, you know, we piped the vessel liquid and suction and relief. Um, it had, you know, it's a two stage system because it had freezing and cooling capabilities. So we had an intermediate suction line that we were tying this this uh, suction, this um, silo into. I went through all the proper procedures, you know, uh, followed my standing operator procedures, did all my lockout tag out, shut the king valves off, stopped liquid going out to all of my equipment, ran the plant, pumped everything back down to the high pressure receiver. Uh, there was no no production going on, so there's no equipment running using the refrigeration system. I told all the affected employees that we would be, you know, um, doing a line entry today. You're cutting into the suction line, pumping your plant down, and you'd be down for a couple hours. So eventually, we get there. We get the hole in the suction line. It was like a six-inch suction header. Um, cut a hole in it for go to start welding it just so happened that where we were tying into the suction header up on the roof we were located directly underneath a ventilation uh, uh relief stack so previously relief stacks the code was they had to have be downward facing so it'd be a big piece of pipe going up 20 feet up into the air with like a gooseneck or a candy cane with the like a like a double 90 on it pointing back down towards the roof or the ground and like I said, we were working under it and um, someone in the silo next to the one that we were piping as a silo just adjacent to it. Um, they decided to CIP it, you know, put a bunch of hot steam in it and clean it. And whatever was, it hadn't been fully pumped out or evaporated or boiled off out of that dimple sheet, um, expanded. And I had it isolated off of the suction line because I was tying into the header and uh, the relief pot, 150 pound relief. And we were directly underneath it and just showered us with liquid ammonia. And it wow. melted our clothes. It'll literally melt your clothes to your skin. So, I mean, it's, it's a caustic, it'll burn. You can't breathe, you can't see. Uh, it goes for all the wet spots on your body, anything with moisture. 
has in 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 if in affinity for water. So as this is happening, it's me a, a fitter and a welder, and the welder that I had had no experience with ammonia really. You know, he had worked with us for a couple of years, just a really good pipe welder. He said, "What do I do? What do I do?" I said, "You have there's nothing we can do until you weld that hole." Like I couldn't relieve that pressure that was inside that silo until I could open the suction line back up. And right now we had a six inch hole in front of our face in the suction line. So he welded it. So he had to keep welding as this is leaking out of the system. Yeah. It was an awful, awful scenario. And it catches you so off guard. Like when you hear a relief valve go off when you're in, you know, pretty silent area, it's, it's, um, it's really scary. You know, you don't know what it is. You don't know what's happening. And then all of a sudden, all you can smell is ammonia and you have, you know, liquid ammonia pouring down on top of you. Hmm. So let me ask you this. And I mean, this seems like it should be in every mechanical room that has any sort of dangerous chemicals. Is there in rooms now, or, or should there be, and this might be part of your, your new company, but should there be a sensor in there that, that that measures the the level or the concentration of this and then if if it gets to a certain point maybe kick on some ventilation like an exhaust and some fresh air at the same time yeah there's yeah there's there's um there is definitely standards and codes and laws for that um you have to have anywhere where there's refrigeration equipment or piping there has to be um some a form of leak a leak did detection so it's usually mm-hmm. some type of ammonia monitoring system leak leak de- detection system um, there's two different kinds there's electrochemical and solid state that's just how it how it reads it and transmits the gas or the concentration back to your panel um, yeah uh, i think codes uh, i don't, I don't want to give people misinformation they might be listening but i think the codes right now are if it's not a machinery room, um, it's 25 ppm for warning, and then 125 ppm for alarm. It might be lower. It might be 100 ppm for alarm, and then a machinery room's higher. Um, and then, depending on your local jurisdictions, uh, certain ppms call the fire department automatically. You know, it's an automatic dial out. Yeah. Is there ventilation in these rooms that kick in or, or that are on all the time? Uh, yeah, any type of machinery room. Machinery room is really the only one that has to. Um, you have to have there's a lot of calculations that go into it, and that's where I'm lucky to have a professional engineer as a partner. Um, but, yeah, there's uh, all sorts of calculations that go in for your ventilation system for upblast, uh, um, amount of air per minute, uh, fresh air intake velocity yeah there's quite a bit that goes into it and then it also needs to turn on for temperature because you don't want your machinery room getting too hot so you have a thermostat also attached to that which will turn it on and shut it off according to according to room room temperature and then you also have to have x amount of ventilation i don't i don't know the numbers off the top of my head but it's uh, x amount of ventilation continuously if the room is occupied mm-hmm. so i just i just think of like uh high-rise buildings and if there's like a fire um 
the stairwells, how the an exhaust fan will come on in the stairwell to remove the smoke right out of the stairwell as the people are walking down it so i was just curious if there was something similar like some larger extraction fan or something that started up if there was a, a an event that just yanked all the yeah most of them are, most of them are really large and like I, I mentioned the the up blast velocity so you have to have a certain amount of up blast to get it like we talked about circling back to the conversation earlier where you know you could a cloud could fall to the to the ground and dissipate low and affect people more easily you have to have this up blast velocity where if if you're venting a room because of a concentration you want to get it up in a way as, as fast as possible gotcha <clears throat> okay so i mean there, there's another one here and when i first read this it said belfast me i thought it was like i didn't even see the me i thought it was in ireland <laughs> <laughs> this i'm like that that'd be you went all the way over to ireland to work on yeah, this that'd right. be cool but um so this one here was something that could happen to anybody an evaporator fan blade blade went through the the coil so what happened there yeah so it was just a, it was a smaller facility uh it was just one storage freezer uh, i had i think three three evaporators at the time maybe maybe four uh they held the temperature of minus minus 20 um uh, two-stage system again and just due to lack of maintenance, um, lack of people really just caring at all. Like no, people just see like a dollar sign attached to maintenance for some reason and not the actual liability and the safety of not doing it. Um, a fan blade broke. I, I don't remember if it was due to excessive ice buildup on a coil or if it was bearings were gone on a motor or whatever it might've been uh, a fan, a fan blade broke and it went through the coil of the evaporator. Mm-hmm. Um, their ammonia detectors had not been calibrated. They hadn't been checked. They hadn't been tested to see if they worked. So normally your ammonia detectors, if you sense like 150 PPM, there's a latch that goes onto your ventilation system and there's a latch that goes onto your King valve and it stops liquid feed. The rest of the system will continue to run, but you will not feed liquid. So what are you doing? You're just pumping the system down. You're stopping any ammonia from leaving the system or trying to prevent, you know, the least amount of leaving the system. Well, this place hadn't done any of their maintenance and they lost the entire charge. I mean, I say it was a small plant, but it was probably 6,000 pounds of ammonia just into the freezer. That's a dangerous situation especially if you have no, no alarms going off, no ventilation, no, no, no type of signal saying that there's a problem. So if a guy goes into that freezer, I mean, doesn't realize it, he might have a very difficult time getting out and it could very easily end in, end in tragedy. Um, so this place lost their whole charge and they ended up paying a lot of fines to the EPA because they came in and saw that none of their compliance work was up to date um i wasn't you know that's not what i was doing then i wasn't doing compliance and safety stuff then i was you know i was the person that was responding i was the person that was going and taking out their old system 
are there old evaporators, putting in new evaporators, new piping, new ammonia detectors, stuff like that. Um, but that was a, that's a pretty scary situation. And that's in Bell. I don't know if anyone listening is familiar with Belfast, Maine. It's, a, it's like this really touristy kind of crunchy little town right on the water where everything's right on top of one another. And it could have been a very bad scene for the, for the general public. Yeah, no kidding. So I, I got to ask a couple of questions. So they lost their entire charge. So what happens to the product that's now in this system? Does it just, it's just part of the, uh, it's just casualty. <laughs> like it's just, it's gone. Their, their product that was in the freezer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, depending on what your product is, it probably won't be affected, but, um, they're, they were a food, a food plant. They, you know, they made food for consumption. So I don't think you'd ever, I don't think you'd ever get the right taste back out of that. You know, you'd always have a little bit. Of yeah. Taste. Yeah. I was, I was actually yeah. thinking on, on, on the lines of losing the, um, the temperature that you're trying to maintain because you lost the charge wouldn't because you can't maintain temperature anymore. The product is now, um, it's bad. Like you, you're not gonna be able to maintain it at the temperature that it's supposed to be at. Right. Unless there's backup. No, there's, there's, there's no backup. There's no, there's no, re, there's no redundancy for the entire refrigeration system. Um, mm-hmm. But if you, if you, if you're in, an, if you're in an insulated warehouse and you close the doors, and you have no, no heat source entering it, and you have all that thermal energy of already frozen product, I mean, you can hold temperature for, for a pretty long time. Long enough to get. The repair, get 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 it repaired and back up and running. You think? No, no, no. Long long enough to get it into some refrigerated trucks into, uh, into yeah, a yeah, different yeah. Okay. facility. Yeah, that makes more sense. So, I mean, how much? My other question is now: when you lose five thousand pounds of ammonia, how much does that cost to replace? The ammonia is um, it's actually the it's the cheap part of the the equation here. Typically, the, the equipment for ammonia refrigeration is a little bit of a heavier price tag on it, but it's worked so much more efficiently. Like you need less horsepower, um, lower pressures um, to run it. And the refrigerant itself, it's, I mean, it's used for way more than just refrigeration. Like there's a lot of ammonia that's out in the world. Um, so it's, it's relatively cheap when it's compared to the other re re refrigerants. Okay. So, um, yeah, I was just curious because if we, <laughs> if we lost 5,000 pounds of R 22, there'd, there'd be a big bill, yeah, a big absolutely. bill to, to, to pay. No, um, probably, if it was 5,000 pounds or more, it was probably somewhere along the lines of a couple thousand dollars, like yeah. $1,000 maybe, which I mean, in the, in the scheme of things in, in, in that situation is the least of their worry. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we got another one. This was in, in Lynn, uh, Massachusetts. Is that where this was? Demo rigging day, yeah, taking cooling yeah. tower off the upper roof. Yeah, so, yeah. This was another, this was another dairy, a big one. I won't say the name. Actually it was, it was sold anyways. The, the building was empty, but it was a massive dairy. They had like 30, 30, 40,000 pounds of ammonia. Um, the building had sold. they Closed the closed the plant down for whatever reason. They they made milk and juice, um, and 
whoever purchased it, they were, they're auctioning off a lot of the equipment, like all the production equipment, all the refrigeration equipment, office equipment, like you name it. They were just auctioning everything off and then demo, then demoing the uh, building. They had asked our company who had been their refrigeration contractor for a long time to come in and help them with, uh, with the, uh, D decommissioning process, you know, evacuating parts of the refrigeration system at certain times, um, you know, doing just maintenance and walkthroughs and stuff. The, the building wasn't occupied, but they were leaving some of the cooler space running for what reasons I'm still not sure of. But they had some, um, some cascade systems in there where we'd use part of the ammonia system to cool glycol or warm glycol for you know, so it's not coming into close, into close quarters with, with product during, you know, milk cooling and stuff like that and HTSDs. So we had a, we had a cooling tower on the roof. It was about, I mean, this was the highest part of the building. It was an old building. It was probably 85, 90 feet off of, off of the ground. This, this part of the, the, the roof and there was a glycol cooling tower. And one of the big differences between a glycol cooling tower and like an evaporative condenser is that they generally all come in two different sections, the top and bottom section. Well, on a cooling tower, the bottom section is the coil section, which has all the weight. And on an evaporative condenser, the top section is the coil section, which has all the weight. So the I had, they had asked me to come over, uh, make sure that they were rigging this cooling tower out properly, that it had been decommissioned, de all the fluid was out of it, the electrical was disconnected, yada, yada. Um, and the, whoever the, their project manager, the demo guy or whoever, didn't, he thought I was too young or whatever, didn't know what I was talking about, didn't really want to listen to my suggestions on their rigging. Um, I forget what, I think we got a five, yeah, we got a 500 ton crane there. Uh, we were about we we're about 300 feet in and 85 feet up, um, so it was it was a good sized crane. It's right on the side of like an expressway, not quite a not like a not a four lane highway, but like an expressway with stoplights and stuff. Okay. And um, we had a police detail there. I you know I told him what the weights were. Um, he didn't want to didn't want to look at the at the tags on the equipment. Didn't want to go back and check any of the paperwork. And he assumed that the top section was the coil section and had all the weight, you know, they're usually somewhere around 20,000 pounds, 30,000 pounds for the, for the coil section. And um, he starts pulling it and the two sections are connected with some bolts and stuff on like a flange, but there's mastic in there to stop any type of water leaks. And, uh, okay. Uh, you know, we, they call it like elephant shit in the grade. Um, but that mastic, it's like, it's like a rubber cement. Once it goes together and it's compressed and the weight sits there for a couple of years, it's, it's like impossible to take apart. So he starts, he's on the walkie telling the operator, keep pulling, keep pulling, asking him how much weight he has trying to separate these two pieces. And he's telling him, no, it's going to be 30,000 pounds, 20,000 pounds. Whatever. So he's got, I think the operator said he has like 25,000 pounds on it. And um, he's lifting, 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 lifting. And all of a sudden, I mean, that that bought the top section only weighed like eight thousand pounds. And once that mastic let go, it shot up in the air like a yo-yo, and oh, just, wow. it just took off. And we're it, the crane was bouncing off its outriggers, um, you know, from side to side. They it was it was a disaster. The police detail ran. 
um, everyone in, on the roof that was with us just ran. Everyone, I mean, where where do you go? I mean, this 500 ton crane is about to either land in the middle of traffic or land in the middle of the building, which still has 30,000 pounds of ammonia in it. It's, it was a it was a very dangerous situation. Jeez. Um, yeah, no one had no one had no one had even asked the question like, okay, what happens? Like, what's our emergency response plan? What happens if you know there's some catastrophic failure here? What if it, what if the crane falls into the building? What are we gonna do if you know if we if the crane goes through the receiver? What you know? What's the plan? Where are we gonna go? Um, I mean, it was a dangerous situation. So that was one of my one of my least favorite days, I'd say, on the job. It's I I don't I I find it it it, I don't know I it I guess it doesn't baffle me because there's so many people out there that just don't care, Um, and they might not be incompetent, but they might be lazy. Like I've I've seen videos online of of um, cranes dropping pools in the backyards over the top of houses, but they haven't calculated um, the distance properly with the weight and the crane just, it, it, it falls over onto the house. Um, there was a, a video I posted on Facebook and Instagram a couple of weeks ago of a helicopter. I don't know the story behind it, but a helicopter lifted a cooling tower off the street, took it up maybe a hundred feet and dropped it. I don't know. People are saying maybe, um, something bad like maybe the 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 helicopter couldn't hold the weight and and he knew and the helicopter was maybe going to crash so he dropped it that's what someone said i don't know if it's true it's just speculation but it's just rigging failure think think, yeah maybe but things like this is just like wow like there's got to be so much planning ahead of time that goes into this and then the day comes and disaster strikes it's just it's crazy Yeah. yeah and i think i don't know i mean this guy i mean they had the right crane there. They had the right equipment. Um, it's just like, it's really ignorance to what the, to the material that you're dealing with. Like, if you don't know, like, don't, don't just not care, you know, like other, everyone wants to go home. Like, uh, we were talking before we started recording, like we, we put our boys to bed at night. I, yeah. I want to make it home. And like, if you're, if your ignorance could make it so that my son never sees me again. And that's one of the scariest things about like what we do, and the people that I've come across and the situations that I've come across, like just don't, they don't understand what the, what the results can actually be like, what, what the cost is. Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. And, and it's, it's like the young people that comment online, they, that don't understand what it's like to have um, a child at home waiting for you at the front door. Um, and the devastation on their face if you never walk through that door again. I mean, these are these are the things that goes through uh, most people's minds. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Most logical people that 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 care, um, and, and it baffles my mind when when people are very, uh, I guess, ignorant to that. But I before we before we run, speaking of putting kids to bed, I got to do that in a minute. But before we run, you mentioned a couple of times about being caught in a cloud of ammonia and having no experience and not knowing what to do. So that's, I was kind of, I wanted to ask you that before, but we, we sort of moved on. So what do you do if you're caught in a cloud of ammonia? Like what, what is, what can you do and and how should an experienced person or how would you act and and how would you tell other people to act if they're caught in that position? Um, 
So someone without experience. Well, so if you're working at a facility that has ammonia, right? If you're an employee of some building that has ammonia in it, you should have your ammonia awareness training. That's the responsibility of your M M M employer. With that being said, mm -hmm. what you do, if you walk into a room and you smell ammonia, you turn around. Do not keep mm -hmm. going straight. Just turn around. If you're outside, move crosswind. Get if you can't go upwind, move crosswind because it will travel with with wind. So you just get up, get away from it. Look for wind socks. If you were, if you're near any type of ammonia spill, you're gonna see wind socks. Look up, look for the wind socks. Move and move in that in in that direction. Um, for me, I mean, it's it's different for me if I'm in like a response situation. You know, I'm I'm equipped with with the right with the right respirators. I'm equipped with handheld um, ammonia detectors. I know I know what my levels are. I mean, you don't see real danger i mean i've been working with it for almost 20 years so i can i can withstand a lot more like i may not i may not smell something that one of my customers smells my mm -hmm. a customer might call and say hey we have a really bad ammonia leak can you come check it out and i'll i'll walk into the mechanical room and i'm like i don't I don't smell it you guys i'm sorry like i definitely believe you i just i i can't smell it like like you do um so with that being said like leave Leave all the response stuff to the uh, professionals. But um, yeah, if you ever find yourself in that situation, um, turn around, go away, uh, go low to the ground, um, get underneath it. And if you're outside, crosswind or upwind, that's the most important thing you can do. And then tell someone. If you smell ammonia, tell someone. Cool, man. Well, that's... That's good advice, and those were good stories. And compliance, I guess it's all it's all about compliance and safety. And and I and I think that's this is what this podcast is all about was getting you on here and to talk about this. So yeah, I, I really appreciate, really appreciate your time, man. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Uh, thanks for letting me kind of share where where our industry's at. Hey, any anytime, anytime you you, you want to come on and, and tell some talk about so, some other stuff that pertains to ammonia, like ammonia service and ammonia install and all that. Just let me know and we'll, we'll do it again. Absolutely. Definitely. I look forward to it. So it goes to show you, or at least it's, it's to me, I, I realize that safety it's on you. It's not on anybody else. It's on you for yourself to be safe. Like we rely on other people during the day to be safe. Like your coworker says, yeah, I, I shut the disconnect off. But you should still be checking, really, with your meter that the power is off and not just trust your coworker. I mean, it looks bad, maybe, on the surface when he says, yeah, I checked, but you check yourself. I'm just saying, just keep it in mind that safety is on you. It's not on your coworker to make you safe. At the end of the day, it's on you because you're the one that needs to go home at the end of the day to your family or whoever you go home to, right? We talked about putting our kids to bed. That That is one of the main goals for me, getting home and eating dinner and putting my kids to bed every single night. And someone else, they don't care. They don't have a vested interest in my life like I do. So I need to be in charge of my own safety. So, so Shane, thank you for getting on here and talking about these stories. And thank you for creating a company that tries to go out there and make sure that companies, other companies that have ammonia 
base refrigeration in their facility is complying to the rules and helping to facilitate that because somebody needs to there needs to be there needs to be safety preventative measures put into place and i know it's a pain in the ass i know it's a pain in the ass when a company walks in and says yeah you got to change that 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 and that and a company's got to spend a lot of money but at the same time it's creating work for for a technician it's creating work for a technician and it's creating a safer environment in the long run so shane thank you very much i appreciate your time and again thank you to the master group for sponsoring the podcast check out master.ca but i'm out guys happy hvacking hope you enjoyed the show follow hvac know it all on instagram facebook youtube tiktok twitter linkedin and anywhere else gary feels like popping up this has been a two smokes and a coffee production